All right. All right. Let's get into the word. We're in the life of David, and that means we're in first Samuel today. Uh, chapter 28, we're going to look at verses 3 through 25. 1 Samuel 28, verses 3 through 25 is our text. The topic we're going to find there is this. King Saul consults a medium, and to everyone's surprise, he ends up being confronted by Samuel. The title of our message this morning, Finding a Not-So-Happy Medium. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we're excited to open up your word because we know that it's alive and powerful, that it desires, Lord, to reveal Jesus to us. And that's really kind of, Lord, what I want to talk about this morning in our, as, as we pray about the Word, that we would see Jesus Christ revealed in it. Though it's about this interesting situation that Saul got himself into with Samuel and many other things that were happening in the life of the nation of Israel, Lord, we know that You are on every page of Scripture, that You want to reveal Yourself to us as a living, risen Savior who is speaking to us. We know that the Holy Spirit is here. He indwells us and He's also in this place to uh, interpret the Word as it were, to teach us the Word. And we know, Jesus, You're here walking in our midst because that's how You portray Yourself in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. And You promised that where two or more were gathered together, in your name, which we are, there you would be in the midst of us. And so I pray, Lord, that we'd have a, a sense of you being manifest in this place today through your word, speaking to us personally and individually. And we'll know that it's you, Lord, because of the tone of your voice. It'll be loving and kind and gracious and merciful. It'll draw us closer to you and make us want to share your love with others more than we ever have before. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name and those who agreed said, Amen. I have an important announcement to make. The world may not end in 2012 after all. According to recent reports, and I quote, the accepted conversions of dates from Mayan to the modern calendar may be off by as much as 50 to 100 years. That would throw the supposed and overhyped 2012 apocalypse off by decades and cast into doubt the dates of historical Mayan Events. I feel better already. <laughs> While the world may not end on December 21st, 2012, there's always plenty to fear as we navigate through our lives. Perhaps that is why the Bible mentions fear so often. Depending on what version of the Bible you're reading, the word fear occurs some 441 times. The word afraid occurs 167 times. Tremble 101 times. Terror or terrified 121 times. Other words occurring multiple times are dread, frighten, and faint. Fear is the dominant emotion in our text in 1 Samuel 28. Twice King Saul is described in terms that reveal overwhelming, as we'll see, even crippling fear. Verse 5 says he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. Verse 20 says he was dreadfully afraid. Saul even has, after that, what we might call a panic attack. He falls full length on the ground and he can barely recover. What's interesting about these two episodes of fear is that the first one occurs because Saul is uncertain of his future. The second one occurs because Saul is certain of his future. It got me thinking about fear in terms of what the future holds for each of us, but more importantly, who holds our future. And so let's follow Saul through his fears and organize our thoughts around two questions. Number one, 
Are you afraid of what the future holds? And number two, are you afraid of who holds the future? First of all, in verses 3 through 14, are you afraid of what the future holds? In the classic Charlie Brown Christmas TV special, Lucy asked Charlie Brown, are you afraid of responsibility? If you are, then you have hypogeneophobia. I don't think that's quite it, Charlie Brown says. How about cats? If you're afraid of cats, you have aluraphasia. Are you afraid of staircases? If you are, then you have climacophobia. Maybe you have thalassophobia. That's the fear of the ocean. Or gephyrahobia, which is the fear of crossing bridges. Or maybe you have pantophobia. Do you think you have pantophobia, Charlie Brown? What's that, he asks. Lucy tells him it means the fear of everything. And he says, that's it! knocks her over. Now, you may not be afraid of everything, but I think fear is a common emotion for us as we journey towards heaven. Let's be honest. As we said, the Bible has almost a thousand references to fear of various kinds. And and if we're honest, I mean, in the sense of really looking at it, some of us are very afraid of things in here today. Very afraid of things in our immediate future, afraid of tomorrow. We're facing financial struggles and personal struggles and uh, people are losing their jobs. Maybe we'll lose our job. We're in a time of an election and everybody wants you to be afraid. If you vote for my opponent, the world's going to come to an end. Uh, I mean, I listen to some of these ads and I think, wow, this guy should be in jail if he's that bad. We can't elect that guy. And then I hear his opponent say, well, he's even worse and, and I, then I think, well, I, I can't listen to these ads. I'll just watch the news. Well, then I'm really afraid. There's pandemics and epidemics and nuclear problems and, you know, and, and, and the dollar. I can't figure out what's going on with the dollar and the yen and the pound. And I don't even know what that means. And, and, and just everywhere you look, there's something to be afraid of. All of those fears are wonderfully countered by God's encouragement in the Bible Fear not, at least 33 times. Do not fear, another 37 times. And do not be afraid, 33 times. Now, one of the things that tells me, as God is speaking to men like Joshua, is that they were afraid, or that they had the potential for fear. And so you and I need to just acknowledge that, yeah, sometimes I get afraid. The real question, though, is, how do I go from fear to faith? How do the some 1,000 references to fear get countered by the Uh, some over a hundred references to being not afraid and walking in faith. Well, sometimes by debriefing a failure, we can plan for success. I know if you're in emergency services, police or fire, or if you're in the military and other fields, you do a lot of debriefing. You look at what happened in detail. And you figure out what was good about it, what was not good about it, so that you can have continued success or better success later. And so we want to look at Saul's epic failure to overcome his fear with an eye towards overcoming our fears. We want to obviously not be like Saul. And so in verse 3, Now Samuel had died and all Israel had lamented for him and buried him in Ramah in his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the spiritists out of the land. God's word instructed Saul to banish the mediums and spiritists. It was something that the king was supposed to do. And so he did banish them. But as we'll see in a pinch, he had no problem seeking one out. 
This tells us that Saul had a rather low regard for God's word. He would do some of what it said, but it didn't really mean anything to him. It might help to recall the incident for which Saul had been rejected by God as king of Israel in the first place. Because it too shows a very low regard for the word of God. He was told to utterly destroy Amalek to kill, and this is from 1 Samuel 15, men, women, children, infants, nursing babies, oxen, sheep, camels, and donkeys. He was to kill everything. But he didn't. Instead, he took captive Agag, the enemy king, and he kept the best of everything for spoil. When Samuel arrived on the scene, Saul greeted him, and this is what he said, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. To which Samuel replied, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen which I hear? Samuel is saying, It's impossible that you have uh, kept the commandment of the Lord because I hear sheep and I hear oxen and they were all to be destroyed. Saul approached God's word as if his commandments were merely suggestions or, if you like, Pirates of the Caribbean guidelines, merely guidelines to kind of get you through life. And so God says, destroy all the Amalekites that you encounter in this battle, all of their livestock, everything that has to do with them. And Saul looks at that and he says, well, that's an interesting suggestion. How about I just kill some of it and I keep what's best for myself? And then when Samuel comes, he believes in his heart that he's kept the Lord's commandment. And so now, here he is afraid. He needs a word from the Lord to calm his heart the night before this battle with the Philistines. And the Lord's oft-repeated command in Scripture, fear not, is something that really can't be meaningful to Saul because the Word of God isn't really meaningful to him. It's not really a command. It's just a suggestion. And, you know, it's kind of hard for somebody to come to you and say, I suggest that you don't fear. Well, now you're going to have to give me more than that. I'm going to have to believe that there's some power behind that, and Saul did not. Do you have a high regard for God's Word? Then you can be assured that as you read it in your time of fear, you will receive the Lord's encouragement to fear not. It'll come to your heart with power. It may take a while. It may involve a struggle even. But the word will come to you in power and it will move you from fear to faith. Verse 4, Then the Philistines gathered together and came and encamped at Shunem. Saul gathered all Israel together. They encamped at Gilboa. <coughs> Excuse me. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid. And his heart trembled greatly. Years earlier, when the Philistines encamped against Israel and Goliath was their champion, Saul had sat looking at them every day gripped with fear. Years later, he is still looking out at the Philistines every day gripped with fear. Saul's behavior is that of a believer who thinks it's strange that they would fall into various trials. Instead, he ought to realize that they are an important part of the Christian life as God seeks to refine you. It's all too common to think it's strange when we are facing difficulties, but rather than fear, God would remind us that faith sees beyond them, looks above them to the Lord, realizing that He is ultimately using them to make us more like Jesus. Verse 6, And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by the prophets. 
more so in those days, God spoke to people through dreams. The Old Testament filled with various spiritual dreams. The Urim and the Thummim were a device that we don't quite understand that the high priest had that by which he would inquire of the Lord and uh, the Lord would give an answer. And then, of course, even though Samuel was dead, there were other prophets. He had started a school of the prophets. But all of these were silent when Saul inquired. Inquiring of the Lord is the very best thing you can do to counter fear. You're specifically told, be anxious for nothing, but through prayer, let your requests be made known to God. That's Philippians 4, 6. And so if you're anxious or worried or we would say fearful, go to prayer. Well, Saul did. Why didn't God answer Saul? Well, Saul's praying was hindered because he was in sin. Sin hinders prayer. So do a few other things as you read through the word. According to Matthew 6.15, having unforgiveness will hinder prayer. God wants you to deal with situations between you and another brother or sister uh, before you come to him. Uh, Guys, I hate to say this, but if you're a husband, if you're not dwelling with your wife in an understanding manner, according to 1 Peter 3.7, your prayers are being hindered. And then James 4.3, you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your own pleasures. And so we would say that selfishness hinders prayer. Keep yourself in a place where your prayers can be heard and then commit to prayer for your situation. Verse 7, Then Saul said to his servants, Find me a woman who's a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Well, in fact, there is a woman who is a medium at Endor. A medium was someone who contacted the dead, then channeled them to bring a message to the living. The word for medium describes the mumbling sound that the person would make as they supposedly channeled the voice of the dead. Even though banished, she was not hard to find. How close are you to living to some habit or some sin that you've banished from your life? How quick are you to go there to satisfy some urge? We need to be careful because banishing something doesn't do any good if you're still able to visit it whenever you want. And so Saul said, yeah, I'm going to ban all the occult influence from Israel. Get rid of all the spiritists and mediums. But make sure you know where they are when we need to go to one. And I think sometimes if we're honest, we do that with sin in our life. We think, I've banned that. I don't do that anymore. Except in rare occasions when I just go into the other room and and that's where I banished it and and then I indulge for a little while. And so we just need to be careful. We fool ourselves so much. Even though banished, she was not hard to find. And so in verse 8, Saul disguised himself and put on other clothes and he went, two men with him, and they came to the woman by night. And he said, please conduct a seance for me and bring up for me the one I shall name to you. And the woman said to him, Look, you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the spiritists from the land. Why then do you lay a snare for my life to cause me to die? And Saul swore to her by the Lord, saying, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. And so she thought she was involved in a sting operation, you know, that they had come to her and they were trying to get her to, to seance. And, and she said, No, I'm not going to have any part of that. You guys are cops. You know, I, I, I see you guys on television all the time. You know, this I'm not, you know, and uh, which is what's funny. I didn't really see this until now. But here she is. She's this this, you know, seer, this spiritist, this medium. She, she doesn't know that this is Saul. Uh, it's like, you know, first of all, he's the tallest person in all of Israel. 
He's, when he got anointed king, it was because he was head and shoulders taller than anybody else. So Shaquille O'Neal walks into her medium shack and uh, she says, I don't know, you know, who are you? I don't know who you are. You might be, you know, somebody. And, you know, Saul disguising him or is, is just, it's stupid to think that she didn't know who he was. Now, the source of your spiritual information is extremely important. Once in the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul, he's being followed by a young girl and she's calling out, these are the servants of the Most High God and she's giving credibility to their message. Her words were actually accurate, but Paul determined and discerned that she was demon-possessed and he cast the demon out of her. And so Paul didn't even want demons to say the truth. That's how important it was that we go to the right source of spiritual information. Currently, there's a movement in the church to supposedly return us to ancient methods of prayer and meditation. I've talked to you before about what are called prayer labyrinths. Essentially, you set up a kind of maze or a walk. It has different stations. When you get to each station or stop, you pray specific guided prayers. And oftentimes there's a picture or an object at that station to kind of encourage your prayer. It is an ancient method, all right, but it's not a Christian method. And so we need to be wary of things that smack of the occult and of mysticism. In the Gospels, you don't read that Jesus retreated to a place to walk through a prayer labyrinth. It just doesn't happen. And all of those things, the sad thing is you do things like that. You go through a labyrinth or you have some other kind of crazy technique and there's something about our flesh where you think, man, I feel closer to God now that I've done that. I I did something. I never prayed like that before and I, I feel like it's drawn me closer to God. And all the time I believe heaven weeps because Jesus died and he rose from the dead. And the minute that he died, the veil in the temple was torn in half, signifying that the way into God's presence was immediate. He didn't tear the veil in half and reveal a labyrinth behind it. Or an object behind it or anything behind it. That was, it was done. It was done. And now you approach God the way a child approaches the parent. Immediately. Interrupting. Your children ever interrupt you? Do they? Or your grandchildren? Of course, it's okay for grandchildren. You want that to happen. But children, your children ever interrupt you? You might have to deal with that as a discipline on a human level. But the picture is, they're your children and they have the right to come in any time they want and interrupt you and talk with you. Setting aside that you're teaching them manners, you know, I understand that. But you, you get it. And then we come along and we say, well, that's the kind of relationship that we have with God now because of what Jesus did. So let's put a wrench in that. Let's, let's build something between that. Let's, let's have a labyrinth. Let's put the veil back up. The veil was cool. It made me feel like I had to do something, even though Jesus said, I've done it all. And so I hate that stuff. I could be a labyrinth terrorist. (laughs) Probably get in trouble now. Verse 11, then the woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, bring up Samuel for me. Note to Saul, Samuel, the last person you want to see. The last time you saw Samuel, he rebuked you. He told you the kingdom was going to be taken from you and that God was going to be your enemy. Hmm. I wonder what Samuel would have to say about now in a seance after I bring him back up from Hades. This could go well, right? I don't think so. 
Verse 12, when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman spoke to Saul, saying, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. And the king said to her, don't be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I saw a spirit ascending out of the earth. So he said to her, what is his form? And she said, an old man is coming up and he's covered with a mantle. And Saul perceived that it was Samuel and he stooped with his face to the ground and he bowed down. Was it really Samuel? Well, maybe this was just a hallucination of the medium. But that doesn't make sense because it doesn't explain why the medium was so frightened or why Saul saw Samuel also or why Samuel spoke to Saul and not the medium. Maybe this was a deception by the medium, which we would say she was practiced at. If you uh, are familiar with the life of Harry Houdini, you know at the end of his life he kept trying to go to seances uh, to have readings and every time he would figure out how they were deceiving him and what kind of fake thing was going on. And so, though I do believe obviously there's a spirit world and people dabble with these things, most of them are fake or they're demonic. Uh, so maybe this was, but this isn't an adequate explanation either for the same reasons I just stated. And so maybe this was just a demonic impersonation of Samuel. And it's possible that the medium with her occult powers summoned a demonic spirit that deceived her and Saul. But this is silly because it doesn't speak to motive. What advantage does Satan gain by Samuel's words to Saul? This is a genuine but strange appearance of Samuel. This is the best explanation because it is supported by the reaction of the medium who got more than she bargained for. And it's also supported by the truth of what Samuel said. And the text says that Samuel said it. It doesn't say a demon came up or anything. It says Samuel came up. It's just a weird, rare condition that God allowed. It's clear that the medium was not in control of the dead or calling him up. God circumvented all that. And he says, okay, you want to talk to Samuel? I'll let you talk to Samuel. Samuel seemed a little bit perturbed. Saul was afraid. The trigger for his fear was the Philistine invasion. And so he called for Samuel. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But was this a good reason to be afraid? Well, sure it was. But it was also the perfect training ground upon which to learn how to go from fear to faith. Saul didn't do that, but we can. Here's what we've learned. We can hold God's word in high esteem and therefore we can be in a place to believe him when he commands us by saying, fear not. We can remind ourselves and others that facing dangers and difficulties and distresses of all kind is nothing strange for a believer, but rather something to be expected and then endured. And we can, in our fears, seek the Lord in prayer and continue to pray until his presence in our lives is bigger than our fears. Now, the second thing we're going to ask is, are you afraid of who holds the future in these remaining verses? We see in Saul's conversation with Samuel that his fears extended beyond the grave. He was afraid to die. Verse 15, now Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And Saul answered, I am deeply distressed for the Philistines make war against me and God has departed from me and does not answer me anymore, neither by prophets nor by dreams. Therefore, I have called you that you may reveal to me what I should do. Samuel was disturbed because he had been resting. For the believer, life after death is rest. In the Old Testament and before the resurrection of Jesus Christ, at death the believer's spirit went to Hades to a place of rest that Jesus called Abraham's bosom. Now to be absent from our bodies at death 
for us is to be present with the Lord in heaven. How can you fear death when it is to be with the Lord who himself died to conquer death and lead us to eternity? And that's why Paul exclaimed once, death, where is your victory? Grave, where is your sting? Verse 16, then Samuel said, why do you ask me? Seeing the Lord has departed from you and has become your enemy. And the Lord has done for himself as he spoke by me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord, nor execute his fierce wrath upon Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will also deliver Israel with you into the hand of the Philistines. Tomorrow, you and your sons will be with me. The Lord will also deliver the army of Israel into the hand of the Philistines. The battle was set. The outcome was certain. There was nothing Saul could do but be defeated and die. Ah, but Samuel said, notice, tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. I don't know about you, but I can't help but read that as hopeful, as encouraging, as wonderful. Especially if you've wasted your life the way Saul had. Been living in sin for so many years, decades really. Troubled by a distressing spirit that came from the Lord. Your monarchy is going to end in absolute failure as you're defeated by the Philistines. And in the midst of all that, Samuel, who you've offended, disturbed, comes and says... Yeah, but tomorrow you'll be where I am. Now, I guess you could argue that Samuel only meant that Saul would be in Hades and that he might be over in the other side, across the chasm, in a place of suffering. But I don't think so because Samuel tells Saul that not only you'll be with me, but your sons are going to be with me. And we know one of the sons of Saul, at least, is going to be in a place of rest in paradise. That would be Jonathan. And so Samuel is unequivocally saying, look, you've ruined your life. You've made shipwreck of your life. Made everybody miserable. The last thing you're going to do is, is be known for is having a seance. Uh, he doesn't tell him this, but he's going to die ingloriously in battle. And the Philistines are going to wipe out the Israelites for a time. But Saul, you're going to be with me. And I'm, I'm excited if I'm Saul. Saul, however, was afraid to die. Life bothered him and death was even worse. He goes into a full-blown panic attack. Verse 20. He fell full length on the ground, was dreadfully afraid because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten no food all day or all night. The woman came to Saul and saw that he was severely troubled and said to him, Look, your maidservant has obeyed your voice. I've put my life in my hands and heeded the words which you spoke to me. Now, therefore, please heed also the voice of your maidservant. Let me set a piece of bread before you and eat that you may have strength when you go on your way. But he refused and said, I will not eat. It's a wimpy guy. So his servants, together with the woman, urged him, and he heeded their voice. He arose from the ground and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fatted calf in the house, and she hastened to kill it. And she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread from it. So she brought it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. And they arose, and they went away that night. Let's not cut Saul any slack. Sure, he was going to die fighting the Philistines. He had only one more day to live. But what is our life anyway? Described in the Bible as a vapor of smoke which appears for a moment and then vanishes away. Knowing he would die the next day, I see this as a tremendous blessing to Saul. It gives him definite time to repent and prepare to see the Lord. But instead he falls on his face in terror 
And that tells us that he is afraid to see the Lord. What a sad comment. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, you need to know that it is appointed for you to die and afterward there is judgment. If you're a believer, there will be a judgment of a different sort as you face the Lord and he seeks to reward you for a job well done on the earth sharing his love with others. You have no need to be afraid of the one who holds the future. The Lord has done everything necessary, first of all, to save you. And then once you're saved, he's promised to complete the good work he has begun in you until the day you see him face to face. Your part is to look forward to that day, not with fear, not this kind of fear, but with excitement and a godly reverence. That day is pictured for you in the Bible as if it were your wedding day. It's like the bridegroom coming to take his bride to their new home to live happily ever after. Now, obviously, it's possible for a bride during the engagement to lose sight of the bridegroom in his absence and to do things that are shameful. It's possible for us as Christians to be ashamed before the Lord at his coming. But having said that, it's also possible for the bride to keep herself ready to anticipate the imminent return of the one who loves her and is coming to take her home. It's possible that we would adorn ourselves with all manner of beautiful things serving the Lord while we wait for him. And so the question becomes, would you be ashamed if the Lord came right now? And if so, it may be contributing to a sense of fear that you can't quite shake. So take some time and get right with the Lord. He doesn't want any of us to be afraid of Him when we see Him. He's coming, the Bible says, with His reward in His hand. Not with handcuffs or a hammer or you know, an Uzi or anything like that. He's coming with His reward in His hand to give us according to our work. And as we say every week, we may see Him at any moment. Let's pray. Father, thank You for these things. I know, Lord, I'm gripped by many fears all of the time, and I believe that so are many of my brothers and sisters here. And I pray, Lord, that as we consider living and the difficulties of it, we would allow You to minister to us and and that we could know the reality of going from fear to faith Lord, as I see your people in the Bible, men like David, for example, even Paul the Apostle and others, um, they go from fear to faith and then sometimes they fall back into fear. And and so I know, Lord, that that's that's just part and parcel of the Christian life. But I pray that we would just, uh, Lord, continue to understand that your word is powerful, your word to not fear, and that it's not a strange thing to be in trials. And that we have prayer, Lord, to bring your presence into our life and that we would continue to overcome. Lord, if there's anyone here who's not a believer, I pray that they would know that it is appointed to them to die and after this there will come an eternal judgment. And that the real issue in their life is to give their heart to Jesus Christ, to confess themselves sinners before you, to know, Lord, that you've given them by your death and resurrection, a righteousness that they can never earn or deserve, that you want to declare them righteous, Lord, justifying them, that you can make their lives just as if they'd never sinned. And so, Lord, if there are one or two or more here in this place today, I pray that when we close, Lord, they come forward and pray with the guys and receive Christ as their Savior. Lord, maybe we're not in a place where we're living in open, rebellious sin, 
but uh, perhaps we've left our first love. Maybe we're just not as on fire as we once were. We're not as stirred up as we need to be. We're not as passionate about you. It happens. Your love is always pure and rich and full for us, but our love wanes. It waxes cold. I pray that we'd have the heart to recognize it rather than argue with you and just repent and go back and do the first works. Help us through, Lord. Life is hard, but you are good. Help us get through it, Lord, with faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's stand together.